welcome. Uh, we come together as those who love the Lord Jesus, who came amongst us as a man, who died, who rose again, and now reigns and one day will return. So as we begin this morning, let's stand and sing, at the name of Jesus, every day shall bow. Please stand and let's sing. While you're standing, I'll lead us in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you brought each one of us here this morning. We thank you for making yourself known to us in Christ and for the hope that we know in him. And as we gather, help us express our thanks and praise as we hear your word, sing of your glory, pray to you and seek to encourage one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Uh, a very warm welcome to you this morning to St Matthew's, uh, both to those of you who are here in person and those of you who are joining us online. It's really good to see you here, uh, especially if you're a guest, if it's your first time with us today, uh, welcome to you. Uh, my name is Andrew Graham, I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, have you heard the story of the four blind people and the elephant? Now, this is not a joke. <laughs> But it's a story that will get us thinking about the topic that we're looking at today in this Confronting Christianity story, uh, series. So there's an elephant and there's four blind people and, and one, of, one of them has a hold of the trunk and says that an elephant is like a very thick snake. Now someone else has got a hold of the tusk and says the elephant is like a spear. 
someone else has got a hold of the tail of the elephant and says that an elephant is like a rope. Someone else has got a hold of a leg of the elephant and says, well, an elephant is like a tree trunk. See, there's a story about individual limitations. How can anyone say that they see enough to see the only truth about God? That's the kind of question that we're looking at today in the fifth of our series, in the Confronting Christianity series, where where we're seeking clear minds, we're seeking compassionate hearts as we answer the tough question, is Christianity the only true religion? Uh, Nathan will be speaking uh, to us later in the the service. We'll, We'll be hearing from the Bible. Uh, We'll also be praying further. But uh, right now we're going to catch up with news around St Matthew's with with the video news. Welcome along today. We hope you feel very welcome at our service. It's so nice to have you with us. And I trust that you enjoy your time with us today, especially if it's your first time here. And if you are with us for the first time, or you'd like to get in touch, or you haven't connected with us yet, you can access our online connect card via the QR code on the little cards that are in the seats in front of you. We'd be especially keen for you to do that so that we can help you find your way and connect at church. Now today in Church News, there are three key things I'd like to mention. Firstly, the scoop. Uh, We love the scoop here at St Matt's. Next week, we're going to be running the scoop again after our 10 a.m., 5 p.m. and 6.30 p.m. services. The scoop is for those who are new or newish, and it offers a short and sweet chance to find out more about St Matthew's. Just 15 minutes or so next week, straight after the service for some free Anita's gelato. Secondly, the Bible and human life. We want to give advance notice to everyone that we're going to be having the second of our midweek sessions that are connected to our Confronting Christianity series. That's happening in the last week of this month of August. The topic this time is the Bible and human life, which will give us a chance to think Christianly about the very important ethical issues around the start and end of life, like abortion and euthanasia. Now, more details will come next Sunday, but we've planned three sessions in the Daly Smith building as follows, Tuesday night, the 29th of August, 7.45pm, Wednesday night, the 30th of August, 7.45pm again, and then Thursday morning, 1st of September, starting at 9.30am with morning tea and the talk will kick off at 10 o'clock. That's the second thing. The third thing is I wish to give us a seven month finance report update. And so let's move to think about that and where we were at the end of July. There's three key high-level points I want you to note. Firstly, in terms of giving, which is obviously a very key metric, we are below budget, unfortunately, by 7.4%. Now, that's obviously uh, not where I want us to be, where we want to be, but it unfortunately is where we're currently at. So that's the first thing to note. Secondly, costs are helpfully under control, and they're also below budget to the tune of 4.4%. So that's helpful. Uh, The third and most important figure to take note of is then where we are in terms of our net position for this year's budget. And we're currently $66,000 behind in terms of where we would like to be to break even. Now this obviously is a concern, but myself and the Parish Council are not panicking at this stage. It is worth noting, we've just been through four and a half years of unprecedented challenges with firstly the building program, and then at the back end of that, the last couple of years with COVID. And that no doubt has affected the bottom line result. As a church, we're now in a position of rebuilding. And there's a general sense of optimism amongst the church leadership, both at a parish council level and a staff, that we're growing and we're heading in the right direction. And it's been wonderful to see numbers on a Sunday slowly increasing over the last couple of months. Now, the obvious solution to this is that we need to increase our giving. So if you're able to start giving or to be generous over and above your regular giving, that would be a great thing to do and very helpful at this time. And if you need more information about that, you can go to the church's webpage uh, where it says give and it's got all the details about how you can give electronically. Uh, Or you can go up to the back and use the FBOS machine or the Lord's Treasury for cash. If you would like to see the half year finance report, 
to the end of June. Uh, that was downloadable from my weekly email or there's a printed version up the back of church you can access today. That's it from me. If you've got any further questions on either of the finance, the midweek seminar or the scoop, please do come and see me or one of the other staff. God bless. Uh, the only other news to let you know uh, about is that straight after the service we'll have morning tea and it'll be a special morning tea uh, this morning as we celebrate the prospect of Annie Cancross's 90th birthday coming this Wednesday. Uh, there'll be a special cake, so uh, please join us over morning tea. We're going to come before the Lord now in prayer, and I'm going to lead us, so please bow your head and we'll come before him. Lord God, we pray that you will pour out your mercy on people across the world who are facing difficulty with major disasters. And this morning we're conscious of people across Europe who are living with a summer of very high temperatures, of destructive fires and, and drought. In your kindness, we pray you'll contain the damage to property from the fires particularly, and that you'll protect human life. And we ask, Lord, that soon conditions would ease and that you would send rain to quench the fires and to bring back life into the earth. Uh, we pray that those who are living with difficulty will maybe for the first time call out to you and learn more of your goodness in the Lord Jesus. And as we are thinking of matters around the world, we thank you for each of our mission partners. And this morning, we want to thank you for 20 years of faithful service of our mission partners, David and Leonie Painter in Cambodia. But we want to pray for them now as they have made the difficult decision to extend their stay in Australia by another 12 months to be close to family members who need their care. Now, in this time of uncertainty for them as they consider their future, we ask you to protect them and please provide them with suitable employment soon. We also pray that the work of training pastors and translating theological resources in Phnom Penh would continue in their absence. Closer to home, in our own community here in Manly, we pray for mercy on people who experience mental health difficulties, particularly for some who come along to our soup kitchen. We pray that your healing spirit would relieve their afflictions and restore calm where confusion and fear diminish each day in their experience of it. We ask you would give family, friends and healthcare workers wisdom and patience as they walk alongside and care for them. And Lord, within our own church family here, we so thank you for the way that you're at work amongst us, for the way that you're stirring many, many people in our church community to quietly and consistently serve others. Thank you for the way so many of us benefit from this service. We thank you for their faithfulness, that you're working in them by your spirit and their willingness to bless others. As the Apostle Paul urges, though, we ask that none of us would become weary in doing good, but as we have opportunity, that you'd help us to do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Lord God, we thank you that you have reached down from heaven to rescue us. Keep turning our hearts to you with thanksgiving and joy as we seek to do your will. And now as we prepare to listen to your word, we ask that you will search us, God, that you'll know our hearts, that you will test us and know our anxious thoughts, that you would see if there is any way offensive in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. Colin's going to come and read for us now from the scriptures. If you'd like to follow along with me, we're reading Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And there are Bibles under the seats in front of you there, and it's on page 1093 in those uh, church Bibles. So we're reading Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the chief priests, high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is God's word. Friends, please stand as we sing our offertory hymn. We are thankful for this day, this beautiful day, for your beautiful word, both of which proclaim your glory to the world. We ask, Lord, that our time together this morning would do likewise. Amen. Amen. I uh, like listening to podcasts about all sorts of things. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I listened to one that had an interview with a, a Hindu priest. Now, it was, it was fascinating. 
absolutely fascinating. Just to hear the journey that this man went through in order to become a Hindu priest. His name is Rahil Patel. And the thing that blew me away the most as I was listening was his devotion and commitment. When he was 25 years old, he was ordained a priest known as a Swami in Hindu religion. And to do so, he had to actually run away from home at the age of 19 uh, in order to begin his studies. Because though his parents were devout Hindus, they had forbidden him to go and, and become a priest because of one of the vows that all Swamis have to make uh, and that was to never see or contact his family again. That wasn't all. As a Swami, he'd be, he would vow to never own anything, not even the clothes on his back. Uh, it included not owning a bank account, not earning a wage. Uh, he would vow to not even touch money ever again. He would also never marry. He would never father children. And he was not permitted to even look at a woman for the rest of his life. Incredible. And, and, and then there was the training. And he, in, in the interview, he kind of runs through all the different things that it involved. And it, it's amazing. He, he, was, he, was, uh, he spent six years at a remote Indian commune with 800 others who were studying. And he would wake at, at 4.45 every morning. Each day, he'd spend hours in prayer, followed by by hours of intensive study uh, and would often last until 11 o'clock at night. Uh, five times a month they would fast from food and water even in the height of summer uh, and they would do that for 36 hours at a time. Five times a month. And there was no day off. He worked at this for seven days a week for six straight years until getting ordained and sent into the field. He was eventually given responsibility over all of Europe. In the 20 years that, that followed, he ended up planting 18 different Hindu temples all across the continent. It's pretty impressive, right? I'm sitting there listening to this, and I'm, like, I'm in awe, basically, at, at the devotion and the dedication that all of this must have taken him. Like, it, it's remarkable. And it, of course, raises a confronting question for the Christian faith. Is Christianity the only true religion. If you're just joining us today for the first time, this is the fifth confronting question that we're asking in our series, Confronting Christianity. And, and I'm sure you've either pondered this question yourself or perhaps been asked it by someone before. Are we really willing to claim that Christianity is the only true religion? That Jesus is the only way? And what does that say about people like Rahil? Are we really prepared to say that, that his devotion and sacrifice is all for nothing? How can you even say that? Isn't that arrogant in the extreme for us to say that? To claim that we've got a monopoly on the truth. And you can feel the weight of that question, can't you? A weight that really has only gotten heavier the further our culture seems to shift away from the idea of there being truth. In many ways, especially here in the West, we have embraced the promise of pluralism. Pluralism is a, is a philosophy that, that embraces the concept uh, of all religions having a piece of the truth, right? That, that's really the, the spirit that sits behind our question this morning. Is Christianity the only true religion? The implication being, surely there are other truths out there apart from Christianity. Now, a central claim of pluralism is that every religion is, is basically a response to the grand reality. Differences between them just get chalked up as different cultural expressions, but they all share one ultimate truth, and that is really just the drive to reach beyond, to seek out the infinite. In the end, no one actually has a monopoly on the truth because the grand reality is so big, it's so beyond, that ultimately it is unknowable in its entirety, and it's actually out of reach. Still with me? Now, Andrew described it as, as a group of blind men who are kind of holding on to different parts of an elephant. They all think they've got something different, when in reality, they, they're actually each holding a part of the same thing. I like the way that it's demonstrated by Professor John Hick in his book, The Rainbow of Faiths. 
Hick uh, is probably one of the most influential champions of pluralism in the past 40 years, and he uses this sketch in order to make his point. So I want you to take a, a look at the picture for me and have a think for yourself. What animal do you see? Put your hand up if you see a duck. Then to this side of the room, put your hand up if you see a rabbit. A few more on this side. Interesting. Which one is it? Is it a duck? Is it a rabbit? It's both. It's both. It actually just depends on which way you look at it. They're just different perspectives on the same thing. Just like religious truth argues Hick. You've got to admit, it's, it's a pretty clever idea, isn't it? And pluralism promises that everyone can be right. It promises to promote the respect and the dignity of all religions, uh, to reduce religious conflict, and to increase tolerance. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Now, I don't know anyone who actually would label themselves as pluralist. Uh, maybe you do. But in my experience, it's way more common for people to say that they're agnostic. And then there might be people here this morning who would describe themselves that way, agnostic. If that is you, great to have you here. But to be an agnostic when it comes to religion is either to say, look, I don't know, I don't know, or perhaps a little stronger, no one can know. And functionally speaking, it's actually got quite a lot of overlap with pluralism. They both hold the same kind of promise. They both hold to the claim that you, you really can't know. It's safer, it feels more tolerant, less arrogant, and it's also a very comfortable place to sit, agnosticism. You see, if it is true that no one can know, then there is no pressure to have to work anything out, is there? You're off the hook, because you can't know. So everyone's really just free to live however feels best to them. I mean, that sounds kind of attractive, doesn't it? Especially at the moment in our culture where, where disagreement is often confused with disrespect. Have you noticed that, how often that happens? We started treating the two as if they're the same thing, disagreement and disrespect. But that's actually not the case. And I, I really like the way that McLaughlin puts it in her chapter on this. She says that to disagree with someone actually shows you respect them. You respect them enough to actually take their views seriously. You respect and value them enough to actually engage with them on things that matter. Obviously, it needs to be done with, with gentleness and compassion, not a sense of superiority. Uh, but unfortunately, these days, we've seemed to lose the art of disagreeing well. I don't know, maybe blame the internet. But, but this confusion of, of equating disagreement with disrespect is exactly what, what draws us to the promise of pluralism. Like, let's get rid of disagreement, less conflict, more respect and tolerance. And that, that approach sounds good, but pluralism also faces some pretty significant problems. The biggest one is this. Although it feels respectful to try and say that all religions have a piece of the truth, that it's just a matter of perspective, that's actually not particularly respectful at all to any of the religions. In fact, it's, it's, it's the opposite of respectful. You see, in order to say that they basically all teach the same thing, you have to sort of wave away the enormous differences between them all. Like, for instance, take a, a basic fundamental question like, how many gods does your religion worship? A Hindu could say millions, a Buddhist would, 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 most Buddhists would answer none, a Muslim would say one, and a Christian would say one, but in three persons. That's about as basic a question as you can get, right? And, and the answers are wildly different. And they also differ on the nature of God, on the key scriptures that you need to read, on the problem with the world, on what salvation looks like, and on how to get there. And they all think that their answers to those questions are actually the right ones. <laughs> and they're important answers. You see, Christianity is not the only religion that claims to have a monopoly on the truth of reality. They actually all do. And guess what? So does our friend, the pluralist. 
See, they end up having to say, all you re religions that think you have the, you found the truth, you're actually wrong. You haven't. And then they try to harmonize, harmonize them all, and they end up having to kind of reduce them down to a single shared trait. Responding to the beyond. That's what's true about all these religions. See, it's actually not as respectful and tolerant as it sounds at first. And John Hick actually demonstrates this problem with his own illustration. It's nice of him. See, the duck-rabbit <laughs> optical illusion, it looks very clever until you realize that in order for it to work, you basically have to reduce ducks and rabbits down to a single part. Rabbit ears drawn to look like a duck bill. Truth is, obviously, there's way more to ducks than their ears and way more, sorry, than their, their bills and way more to rabbits than their ears. And if you're willing to take each animal on their own terms as they actually are, it's very clear that they actually look nothing alike. <laughs> They're both dangerously cute, guys. And so though it feels more respectful to say that all religions are basically the same, it's actually the opposite. It's, it's dismissive, it's patronizing, and, and, it, and it fails to take any of them seriously. I really like the way that, that John Dixon puts it in A Spectator's Guide to World Religions. He says, when we say all faiths teach the same things, we are doing a real disservice both to our own brains and to the religions themselves. I can't help feeling that... The only way such a, uh, to say such a thing with a straight face is either to remain unaware of what the religions teach, which is perhaps bad for us, or to deliberately minimise their distinctives, which is probably unfair to them. So, where does that leave us then? Well, if you want to find the truth... It means you actually need to examine religious claims on their own terms, to take them seriously, to look at them in their best light. That's what we've got to do. Because they may all be false, but they can't all be true. And, and we actually need to examine them, because if it turns out that one of them is true, what a tragedy it would be to have missed it. So, you know, wherever you sit on the spectrum of belief, whether you're a Christian, an atheist, an agnostic, a Buddhist, wherever you're at, make it your aim to examine each claim. Good bumper sticker, isn't it? Take the time to actually take a look. John Dixon's actually just updated his book on this subject. It's not called Spectator's Guide anymore. It's now a Doubter's Guide to World Religions. And the thing I love about this book is that he, he, he does a great job of unpacking the five major world religions by putting them in their best light. Like, he really tries to do that. If you haven't read it, I reckon it's worth tracking down and having a read. And as Christians, we actually need to, to have done that with our own faith as well. To actually know what's compelling about Christianity's claims. We need to do that for ourselves, but we also need to do that so that we can share it with others. So when someone asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, you're able to tell them. And when it comes to the claims of Christianity, it really starts and ends with Jesus, doesn't it? There's obviously way more to it than just that and just him, but really Jesus sits at the centre of everything. I like the way that Gerald Bray puts it. He says this, We assert that in Jesus Christ we have met the God who made us, who has delivered us from our sins, and who has promised us deliverance from the troubles we suffer in this world. I like it. It's punchy. It's punchy. See, it's Christ who's there at the centre, which is exactly what we heard from our reading in Acts chapter 4. Peter stands before the Jewish leaders and he proclaims, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is at the heart of the Christian faith. And one way to, to examine some of the claims is actually by just moving through his, his major movements. You actually might find this a helpful way to explain it to someone. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension.
I'm going to run through them briefly for us. Firstly, his birth. Now, Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere. The idea of him being the Messiah or Israel's saviour, it wasn't invented by his disciples. His arrival was actually long awaited. It had been predicted, promised, prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. That he would be, be of royal blood, that was predicted. That he would be born to a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. That was predicted as well. Prophetic promises found throughout the Old Testament hundreds of years before it all happened with the birth of Jesus. From the moment he enters the world, before doing or claiming anything about himself, there are neon signs. Hundreds and hundreds of years before that are pointing to him being Israel's long-awaited king. Secondly, this is also made abundantly clear through the events of his life, through how he lived. You know, he taught with divine authority. He claimed to forgive sins. He could wield the power of nature, things that only God could do. And he even had the audacity to say things like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Pretty adamant, right? See, the truth is you can't think well of Jesus Without accepting that claim, you can't separate him from it. So he is either right or he is not in his right mind. Those are the only two options. Thirdly, there's, there's obviously a lot to be said about his death, the significance of his death. I just want to make one point on this though. Consider for a moment <clears throat> the agony of the cross. Now, Scott touched on this last week if you're with us. The physical pain of the crucifixion, definitely, but even more than that, the, the, the relational and the spiritual pain of being torn from the Father, from his Father. Like the prospect is so terrible for Jesus that it reduces him to an anxious mess on the night before he dies. What does he plead to his Father? He says, if it is possible, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. See, the only reason Jesus dies that next day was because it was the only way. It was absolutely necessary. But consider this. If pluralism is correct, and every religion really has a handle on the truth, it actually renders Jesus' death needless. Turns out there were other ways, Jesus... Your father could have taken the cup from you. I mean, that, that is a horrific thought, right? It's a horrific thought. What does that end up saying about God? There were other ways. Fourthly, we get to his resurrection. The claim that Jesus rose three days after dying is the central claim upon which Christianity is founded. It's the proof that Jesus was who he said he was. Without his resurrection, Paul writes to the Corinthians, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So if you want to know where the truth of Christianity stands, it, it starts right here. Right? Examine the resurrection. The evidence is extensive. The accounts are early, by which I mean the original written sources. They're dated just a few decades after the event, which is completely unheard of in the ancient world. And that means that people were still alive at the time who could contribute or could challenge the accounts. This isn't some waffly legend that was invented centuries after the event. The accounts are early, which is why they're based off eyewitness accounts, eyewitness testimony, right? This is not friend of a friend of a friend. It's people who were actually there, who saw it with their own eyes. More than 500 people saw Jesus risen. His disciples ate with him, spoke with him, touched him. And then they themselves went and wrote about it. And curiously, they left in lots of embarrassing details. Stuff that you would gloss over or leave out if you're making it up or if you're trying to make it sound more believable. You know, for instance, the disciples are surprised that he's, that he's risen. They weren't expecting it. They look dumb. They lack faith. And the first people to have seen Jesus alive were women 
which is a really uncomfortable truth for the account because at the time women were not even allowed to testify in court. They were, they were seen as unreliable testimony. So you wouldn't have that happen if you were making this stuff up. It's only in there because it's what actually happened. And there are plenty of extra biblical sources that, com- that confirm the details in the Gospels, things like that Jesus was a real person, that, that he was executed by Rome, that, he, that his disciples claimed that he rose from the dead, and that they worshipped him as God. All of those details are confirmed by extra-biblical sources, major ancient writers like Tacitus and Josephus and Pliny the Younger, and there's plenty more. And lastly, this testimony ended up costing the disciples everything. It became excruciating for those who preached it. All but one of the 12 disciples ended up executed for holding to the truth of the resurrection. Which is extraordinary when you think that these are the very ones who are supposed to have made it up. (laughs) Who dies for a lie? No one dies for a lie. And actually they're all willing to die precisely because death is no threat when you believe the resurrection is real. So there's five E's of evidence for the resurrection. See who can remember it next week. That brings us to Jesus' ascension. Before he ascends to his Father in heaven, he issues the disciples what we, we call the Great Commission. And what does he say? He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about those who are outside Israel. They got their own ways to God. He doesn't say that, does he? He says the exact opposite, actually. Everyone needs to know this. Everyone needs to be baptized in my name. They need to be taught what I commanded. Everyone, whoever they are, wherever they live, whatever culture they belong to, whatever beliefs they were brought up believing, the world actually needs me, Jesus says. And then that's exactly what we see happen. Jesus goes up. The Holy Spirit comes down bomb going off. Just like we see in Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. Jesus' disciples are empowered by the Spirit and they start preaching up a storm. Verse 13, which actually we didn't read, you can see, says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Fishermen, became church planters. And less than 300 years later, the mighty Roman Empire is effectively Christian. And the Bible becomes the first mass-produced book in history. It's now the most printed book in history. And there are more Christians in India today than the entire population of Australia. The echo of that bomb going off is still ringing out today. birth was expected. His life was divinely unique. His death was necessary. His resurrection, a historical reality, and his ascension led to a spiritual explosion. It kind of leaves us with two options. Either it is true, Jesus is the only way, or else you're left to explain how a group of depressed, unschooled disciples somehow managed to fabricate a story that has changed the world for the last 2,000 years. Choose your miracle. As we finish, I just want to come back to Rahil, our Hindu Swami, for a moment. Despite 20 years of incredible devotion, over time he actually started to feel a little uneasy. After so much time, so much study, so much sacrifice to the gods, he never quite found the peace that he had been promised, the peace that he was looking for. And he noticed as well that it wasn't just him, but the other swamis as well. They weren't at peace. I mean, using meditation, he was really good at at appearing to be at peace and indifferent and calm. And yet underneath, he found himself constantly racked with anxiety and doubt and worry 
and he actually just couldn't shake the sense that, that his decades of dedication hadn't actually changed him much at all. Not deeply. Not within. At the same time he was grappling with, with all this, he actually found himself oddly fascinated with the symbol of the cross, he said, and the word Messiah. He was drawn to them somehow. And secretly he began looking at, at a Bible, flicking through it, and he actually even started smuggling bits of the Bible into his Hindu sermons without his congregation even realising. And then one day he was, he was walking past a church in central London, and the smiling welcomers drew him in. He said the moment that he stepped inside, it felt like a blanket of deep peace had fallen upon him. The first time in his life. And in his left ear, he heard, a, he heard a silent voice and two simple words. You're home. That was back in 2012. He's now been walking in the faith for 10 years. If you're uh, interested in the interview, I, lis I listened to it. Was, it was John Dixon on his Undeceptions podcast. Rahil's also written a book himself about the experience called Found by Love. I think what I love most about the story is just that sense of being found. Here is how he ends his book. He says this, I am beautifully overwhelmed by the person of Jesus. Through him, I am now a son of my heavenly father. Though for many years I ran away from him, he kept searching for me and now I am found. He was searching for me all the time. I'm thankful that he found me. See, everyone wants to find the truth find it. And our world is looking everywhere for it. But the Christian faith is, is actually set apart on this. You see, Christianity says we don't find the truth. The truth has found us. Jesus, right? He seeks us out. He came down to us to live with us, to die for us, and then to rise before us. This truth isn't found, it's not invented or discovered, it's given. It's given, precisely as Peter proclaimed. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We've been given this truth. Have you received it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in a world uh, that claims to have so many different truths and that tries to stop us from claiming to, to have received the truth, Lord, we pray that the truth of the gospel, the truth about your Son might cut through the noise, the noise in our own hearts and minds, that we might know, Lord, what it is you have done for us and what a difference that makes not just for ourselves but for our world thank you lord that you're a god that's not remained silent or hidden but has actually come down to find us in jesus name we pray amen now before we sing um our next song i actually thought a great way to respond together would be to stand and to say the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is an ancient creed that, that captures kind of the, the key beliefs of the Christian faith. And what I want you to notice, as I'm sure you've noticed before as we say it, is just how central Jesus is to what Christianity is claiming. So let's stand and let's say these ancient words together. Together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, 
forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Please remain standing as we sing our final song. Are we going now? We'll start again. <laughs> Friends, we're going to share together now in the Lord's Supper. If you don't have one of the communion packs, please raise your hand. And uh, Larry's got uh, some, some, of, some of them there just over here for John. And uh, for those of you at home, sorry I didn't give you notice earlier, but if you've got time to grab some bread and a, a cup, uh, it'd be great to have you joining with us. And yes, it is worth um, getting your little pack ready and getting the little plastic bit off the top so you've got access to the bread and uh, the foil part off so that you're ready to drink from the cup. So when Jesus first shared uh, what we've now come to practice, when he shared the Lord's Supper with his disciples, they didn't fully understand what was about to unfold. Um, but he, he used these two elements, the, the bread and, and the, the cup, to help them understand what his death would mean for them and for people everywhere. And it's worth recognising that as we, as, we, as we read the accounts of that supper, they're written by people who were there, or in the case of Luke, by someone who'd spoken to people who were there, uh, by people who were familiar with their confusion, uh, they, they, they're aware of the birth of Jesus and something of its significance. They'd seen his remarkable life, but he was going to the cross. For what reason? Um, this is right in the centre of our faith. And 
afterwards, after he'd risen from the dead and sent the Holy Spirit, uh, people like the Apostle Peter preaching in Acts chapter 4 fully understood the significance of all that had unfolded during their lifetime before their eyes and in their very presence. So we've got this morning a simple ceremonial meal that we share as a way of recalling that last meal uh, which has come to be so significant in our understanding of what Jesus has done for us and for people everywhere. This is the way it's recorded in Luke's Gospel. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after the meal, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So in a moment, we're going to share together in that little bit of bread that we've got ready now and the, and the, the cup. But first, let's come before God and humbly confess to him our own sins. As it says in 1 John chapter 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'll just give you a moment to prepare yourself and then we'll join together in the words of this confession. Together, Heavenly Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love, but we have gone our own way and rejected your will for our lives. We are sorry for our sins and turn away from them. For the sake of your son who died for us, forgive us, cleanse us and change us. By your spirit, enable us to live for you and to please you in every way. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. It's a wondrous thing, isn't it? Uh, to know the nature of our rebellion against God and to know his forgiveness and the peace that brings, peace you'll find nowhere else. Uh, these words of reassurance in 1 John say, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So lead us in one further prayer before we share in the bread and the wine. We thank you, our Father, that in your love and mercy, you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our salvation. By this offering of himself once and for all time, Jesus made a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world and commanded us to continue a remembrance of his precious death until his coming again. Hear us, merciful Father, and grant that we who receive these gifts of your creation, this bread and this wine, according to our Saviour's command, in remembrance of his death and suffering, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. So let's just take the bread, and as we eat, let's take it in remembrance that Christ died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. And let's drink from these cups in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for us and be thankful. The death of Christ for us is certainly something to be thankful for and to ask for God's help to show that thankfulness in everything we do. So please join me in this prayer of thanksgiving and dedication. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. 
Keep us in this hope that we have grasped, so we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, it's been uh, so helpful to consider our response to that confronting question. Are we being arrogant? How can we say that Jesus is the only way? Uh, We've heard it as we've considered the reliability of the testimony to his life, long promised, and to his death and resurrection by those who were there at the time and who wrote those things down so that people like us could know the remarkable thing that took place 2,000 years ago as the saviour of the world came amongst us. And as Peter would say in Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else, for as there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Would you please stand? And uh, I'll invite you again to come and join us for morning tea and the celebration of 90 years uh, that God has given to Annie Cancross. And uh, let's, uh, let's encourage one another and bless one another in the words of the grace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.